Uh, great uh, to be with you this day. I've uh, been a few weeks since I've uh, been up here, and uh, thankful for Jerry Lowe and my absence. Uh, I was here a couple of times uh, the last couple of weeks listening, and uh, uh, my colleague in ministry here preached three very terrific messages that were God-honoring and Christ-honoring, and uh, did a, a phenomenal job, and I've uh, actually decided I'm going to pick up exactly where he left off in John chapter 2 uh, today, and uh, a couple of prefatory remarks. I have a good friend, uh, Suzanne, and I have a good friend, Rich Cradle. His wife is not here, but uh, we've, uh, he's been a kindred spirit for 30 years now, and uh, he's part of uh, the mission group that I belong to. And uh, we've known each other for a long time and seen the good, bad, and the ugly. Wonderful friend. So make sure you greet him before you leave today, okay? And uh, just one other piece of graffiti. My good friend Chuck Verzi is over there in a Charger jersey today. <laughs> they happen to be playing an exhibition game after church today. And I just want you to make sure he doesn't leave before the message is over, okay? <laughs> So uh, anyway, keep an eye on him. He's pretty slippery. So go from there. Uh, Our place of residence, as was read a few minutes ago, is uh, John chapter 2. I invite you to turn to that. And as you're opening your Bibles, I want you to mentally transport yourself to the city of Anaheim in a place uh, known as Disneyland. I'm certain that most of you are pretty familiar with it. Uh, I've uh, been perhaps so four or five uh, times in the course of my life to Disneyland. Uh, But I want to take you back to uh, something that happened uh, about 30 years ago when I was there with my family. Now, at that particular time, Disneyland was divided into quadrants. You know, Frontierland and Fantasyland and Adventureland and Tomorrowland. And Tomorrowland is that quadrant that sort of promises you the future, kind of gave you experiences that weren't quite here yet, kind of a high-tech kind of world that would be someday. And we've obviously blown past that today, and it's a bit obsolete But uh, that's where I wanted to go because I was kind of captivated at that particular time by that uh, high-speed strobe-lit ride called Space Mountain, kind of familiar with that a little bit. And uh, my son, Stephen, young son, Stephen, was the only child I had that wanted to go on it with me. So uh, we got in line, and it was about an hour wait, and that was typical during that time, and we were willing to go ahead and pay the price. Now, one of the things that Disneyland has done, been able to do more than most other amusement parks, is that they had the ability to breed anticipation, you know, with every Uh, turn of the line. You may not be where you want to be, but there is always something interesting to look at. And while we were out in the hot sun, I kept my mind on the the little plastic molded door that said space module. And I said, Stephen, 
when we get behind that door, we're going to know a little bit more about what's going to happen to us. And so we waited in line, and ultimately we got uh, beyond the little space module door, and we were on a rubberized floor that kind of tilted downward. And it went about 40 yards and then turned left. And I said, Stephen, when we turn left, man, it's going to be good, you know? (laughs) And we uh, got down to the end of that, the line, and uh, there was another line going 40 yards in the opposite direction. You know, but we didn't matter because, uh, you know, we were going on this real terrific ride and we were willing to pay the price for that. And so we got down a, a little bit further with each turn of the line, they're just building anticipation. The adrenaline was building. And, uh, you know, it was a long wait, but we didn't care because we got to the point where uh, we were hearing little voices come over the intercom that were launching little rockets, you know, primary oxygen, check, humidity, check. (laughs) You know, the adrenaline was kind of welling up with inside of us and so forth. And I could tell we were gaining status because we could now feel the air conditioning. (laughs) And uh, Stephen and I gave each other a bit of a pompous look, um, thinking about the poor suckers that were still outside in the line and so forth. Well, we finally entered uh, a large gymnasium, and we could see people getting into the space capsules, so to speak, and uh, riding that great mountain. And finally, our anticipation became a reality, and we slipped into those little modules and those little space rockets there and felt the air-actuated seat belt push us against the seat, and we were off. And we climbed, and then we plummeted, and then we turned a sharp right and a sharp left, and going back and forth like this. And, and uh, man, it was just moving quickly, and by the time we figured it all out, we were back at the dock and out in the hot sun. You know, and I, and I thought to myself, I just gave up one hour <laughs> of my life and all that high-octane anticipation for that? Uh, no, you know, I, I'm you know, not really down on Disneyland. I hope to make it back maybe one more time before I die. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, ever felt like that? Uh, you know, may not have been Space Mountain, but it was something that you greatly anticipated and ultimately achieved, but only to wind up with a measure of ambivalence, wondering whether or not it was worth it. You know, it was doing what you wanted to do, when you wanted to do it, with whom you wanted to do it, and yet you still weren't satisfied. Now, again... Uh, No problem with Disneyland, but when you observe the culture in which we live, you discover that millions of Americans are terminally ill with the disease of dissatisfaction. We've never fully discovered the secret of joy. Uh, But we have discovered that life that's lived under the sun doesn't really deliver as much as it promises. Now, in contrast, Jesus says this in John 16. He says, when you see me, you will rejoice. And when you rejoice, 
No one is going to ever take away that joy from you. And it's just a reminder to you and to me that the human soul is built for something far greater than anything that's contained in this world. And that would include world-class achievement and all of the status that might come with it. You know, and you think about it, uh, harsh reality, most of us are, are only going to be remembered by a very few friends and loved ones when we're gone. They'll come and uh, they'll go to a memorial service and they'll think about us, but then they'll get on with their lives. And that's kind of the way it is. But Jesus says, you know what? It really doesn't matter because ultimate joy is going to be found in me. I shared with you a little bit before that uh, what really drew me to the Lord Jesus Christ in the latter part of my high school years uh, was not the intellectual arguments for the credibility of the Christian faith. You know, you think about the cosmological argument that says the universe had a beginning and its most likely cause was an all-powerful creator God. Or the teleological argument that says that the random action could never account for the sophisticated organization that we see and observe in this world. Or the ontological argument that says since the thought of an all-perfect being exists in our mind, therefore there is one. And really, these are good arguments, and I don't want to dismiss these non-theistic arguments for the credibility of the Christian faith. But the thing that really captured my own heart and brought me into the family of God was the argument from joy. And I saw a beauty and a vitality and a life in a high school youth group along with the students, but the, the leader, the adult leaders that were leading them I saw something that I desperately wanted. It was cosmic in nature, and I was just simply swept up in it, and I've never looked back since those teenage years. Now, there's just a couple of points I want to share today. Uh, it's not a long message, but I hope it'll be somewhat profound. But uh, just a reminder that there is a shortage of joy in the world today, and this is pretty self-evident. Uh, all you have to do is observe humanity. You know, one of the things uh, that's characteristic of our Lord is that the first 30 years of his life, we don't really know too much about. We certainly know about the birth and how he was born in Bethlehem and that it fulfilled prophecy and Mary and Joseph went down there and he was born in the stable and the shepherds came and ultimately the wise men came as well to welcome him into the world and Mary and Joseph needed to escape to Jesus, to, to Egypt, I should say, to avoid the wrath of Herod and so forth. And uh, beyond that, we don't have a lot of information about him. The gospel accounts just sort of move on. And so there was 30 years of his life, however, that were spent for the most part in Nazareth, the city of Nazareth in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. And uh, we know that he was a carpenter. He probably worked with his father. And Mary and Joseph, his mom and dad, uh, had relations after 
uh, Jesus was born, and they had a number of brothers and sisters. The, the writer of the book of James was one of the younger brothers of Jesus and had a hard time putting up with Jesus. He wasn't a believer immediately, and I can understand why. How would you like to have an older brother that was absolutely perfect? And, <laughs> You know, never left a ring in the tub, never left any, never did anything wrong. Well, this is what was like growing up in the, in the home of a, an older brother was perfect. But when he got to be 30 years old, he took off the carpentry belt, he laid it aside, he shook hands with his dad, gave him a hug, kissed his mother goodbye, and then he went down to the Jordan River and he was baptized by John. And John saw him as he was baptizing believers. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God that was, has taken away the sin of the world. And Jesus was baptized and he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he fasted, tempted by Satan. But he proved that he was the Son of God, never yielded to any of those three temptations. And then he went out and he chose his disciples, these men that were going to remain with him uh, all the way to the end uh, of his life. And obviously, one was Judas, and you know he met his own demise and so forth. But uh, uh, all of these things, Jesus was, was going on. And then after Jesus chose his disciples, the very first thing that they went to was this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And, and Cana is a little town just east or west, I should say, of the Sea of Galilee there in, in the uh, you know, northern part of the nation of Israel. And so uh, that's where Jesus was raised. And, uh, you know, he, he had his ministry and then he, he met his demise there on the cross for you and for me. Now, those weddings uh, at that particular time uh, were huge events as they really continue to be in Jewish culture. Uh, in Jewish culture, weddings are big, big deals. Um, the closest thing that probably we have to it today would be an Italian wedding or maybe a Greek wedding. Uh, maybe a big, fat Greek wedding. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, and uh, the wedding feast would uh, not be just a, a sedate little party. It was a regional festival, and people would come, and it would go on for a week, and sometimes more than, than that. And so, uh, anyway... Uh, the bride and the groom at this particular wedding, whoever they happened to be, they ran into a problem in that they ran out of wine. And there was a rabbinical saying that says, when you run out of wine, you run out of joy because wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible. And Mary came to Jesus, walked up to him, his mother, and said, Jesus, we've run out of wine. What are you going to do? Very natural for her to ask him that. And he give, comes back with this unbelievable, cryptic answer. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the time of his death. 
Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, in other words, he could have said, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm not ready to die. Now, Mary is probably obviously used to Jesus saying these kind of cryptic remarks or something like that. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he says. You know, it's okay, you know. Don't let it throw you. Now, and, and again, when you look at the strange statement of Jesus, it seems like he's kind of lost in thought. He's deeply stirred because he sees what's happening. The wine has run out. The party hasn't delivered. And he's going to have to pick up the pieces, and it's going to cost him his life in order to do that. I see that the disaster of the party, if you please, is a metaphor for the reason that our Lord Jesus Christ actually came to this earth. He came to restore joy to a world that's been broken and marred by the sin of human beings as we, we fell there in the garden along with Adam and Eve. And so God came back to, to bring us joy, restore this joy to a broken world. And joy is really the fundamental bent and bias of the human soul. We, wanted, we, we want to be happy. We want to be joyful more than anything else. And we will, we will lie. We will cheat. We will go back on our promises. We will fudge our convictions. We will violate our standards if we think anything is going to get in the way of the joy that we're after. But the inherent problem with this whole thing is that when we make something like joy more important than righteousness, uh, we end up violating ourselves. And, and we discover that we're heading in the wrong direction. Uh, Joy will run out of any party that we throw. And so there's a shortage of joy in the world. We understand that. We see it. The best of marriages, the best of families, the best of friendships, they're still, we're still fighting for it. And the second thing, the second main point is this. A relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the solution to the shortage of joy. And this is something that we would well expect. And C.S. Lewis put it well. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If a man feels hunger, there's such a thing as food. If a duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. If humans can feel aroused, there's such a thing as sex. And then he goes on to say, but if I find a desire within myself which no experience in the world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, he's simply saying earthly pleasures were never meant to completely satisfy, but only create a thirst for something that is far greater. You know, and he's saying the good gifts that we receive from the Lord here on earth always point to something greater. And a good example of that would be sex itself. You know, it's really the capstone in the cultivation of oneness in a marriage. And oneness in a marriage cultivates an expectation of what glory will be like. 
We need to remember the New Testament is called, in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And we can rightly say that the most rapturous love between a man and a woman here on earth is mere bread and water compared to the ecstasy of communion and closure that we're going to find with our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, someday in glory. Now, those of you who are in my age bracket will remember the name Dan Fogelberg, popular writer, songwriter, and singer, back in the 80s and 90s, but he wrote these words, longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than the birds ever flew, longer than there have been stars in the heaven, I've been in love with you. Not far-fetched sentimentalism there. Real love is always trying to get at eternity, and the sweetness of affection between a husband and a wife, no matter how wonderful, will never quite be complete. You know, one of my seminary professors said that marriage is designed to be a jeweled signpost pointing us to God. You know, when a couple in a Romeo and Juliet moment uh, in that state of mind and whisper to one another, you know, this thing is greater than we are. They speak more truth than we really realize because it points to simply a greater ecstasy. You know, Tim Keller wrote a fantastic book on marriage. It's one of the best books that I've, on marriage I've ever read. But he says this, those who deify sex, making it an end in itself, miss the true meaning of it. All the good gifts that God gives us here on earth will still leave us wanting. And that's by design because joy is fundamentally eschatological. It simply points to the future. We taste and see the goodness of the Lord right now in our life and we thank him for it, but it's not complete just yet. And if we insist on experiencing all the pleasures of heaven right now, it will lead to adultery. So we anticipate simply by the good gifts that God gives us right now. And And if we don't do that, then the wine is going to run out of any party we throw. You know, there's a lot of people today that think Christianity is anti-joy. You know, if you want to be a Christian, you got to stay out of trouble. You got to go to church. You got to listen to a lot of long, boring sermons. It's not a a pretty exciting existence, but that's the price you've got to pay if you want to save your soul from eternal damnation. (laughs) I mean, think about the Lord. I mean, if you were the Messiah, and you had just chosen your disciples, and you really wanted to make a statement to the world of what you were really all about, what would you do? Maybe raise somebody from the dead or heal somebody that was deathly sick. Maybe feed a multitude. All of that would have made sense. But Jesus says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my debut and tell people what I'm all about by creating 100 gallons of unusually good wine. (laughs) You know, and they were there at the wedding feast and the people tasted the wine. They said, man, that's great stuff. Five years? No, about five minutes. (laughs) You know, it's 
It's interesting. You know, the Bible has a way of um, just reminding us that if we embrace Christianity, we're not opting for a boring life. If our understanding of Christianity is like that, then it's woefully inadequate. You know, again, Jesus' mind could have easily drifted from the, from the wedding in Cana of Galilee uh, to the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of time. And that was a, would, will be a feast to end all feasts. And at that particular time, all of us, all of us are going to feel the way a bride feels on the day of her wedding. You know, the reflective bride, and I've never been one, I'm only surmising this, but nevertheless. <laughs> but the prospective bride on the day of her wedding is thinking, you know, I am loved, honored, rejoiced in, and cared for by the one man in all of the universe that I most love, honor, and respect. And furthermore, all this man is, all that he has, comes to me and becomes mine. And furthermore, all of the people that I love most are here witnessing what is taking place, and their cup of joy is being filled by my blessedness. You know, you know the Bible gives us a little bit of image, but the reality of what will happen when we're united with Jesus Christ is far, far greater. You know, may, maybe some of you ladies have never been a bride. Maybe you were a bride. Maybe you got a divorce. Uh, maybe your spouse died. Uh, and and that, that's difficult. Uh, maybe the brightness of the wedding itself has been clouded over because of tragedy. You know, Suzanne and I have a, a, a friend in Ottawa, Canada, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And she was in my college group when I was a college pastor there. And uh, she was in her mid-20s or early 20s, something like that. She's now in her early 60s. And she's never been a bride. And she's a wonderful, beautiful lady. And she would love even to this day to be a bride. But it just hasn't happened, but she's mature enough in the Lord to realize that ultimately, you know, what I'm going to experience as a member of the body of Christ, I'm going to have a heavenly bridegroom. And there's going to be closure there that is going to be infinitely better. So I've got something to look forward to. See, even... She understands that even the very best marriages here on earth don't really deliver what both parties need. We, we're going to fail each other. It happens all the time, and there's heartache and, and difficulty. And the, the beautiful thing is, is that there, all of that will be done away with at some point in glory. And Jesus simply says, hey, you unite with me and the day will come when you will enter a wedding feast that will last forever. And it's a feast that's so great that the weddings that we enjoy and go to today are just simply a dim outline of it. And you get to thinking, you know, Jesus acted pretty weird 
at this uh, wedding party in Cana. And perhaps the reason that he was acting so strange and was maybe so abrupt with his mother is because he was watching the, the laughter and the dancing and the sipping of wine, and he knows that, that the only way to bring the world into that great feast at the end of time is through his own death. And the irony is simply this. We get to drink the cup of joy because Jesus, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath and death itself. And so marriage today, as good as it is, is simply training wheels for a greater union in Jesus Christ. And until then, what do we do? Well, we come together as a fellowship, old, young, rich, poor. Uh, it just doesn't matter. We link arms with one another and we march toward that common goal of greater intimacy with the Savior. And the one thing that we need to remember for all of this is simply this. Jesus always saves the best wine until last. Father, thank you for this reminder of what Christianity is all about. You came and said, you know, I don't want this to be a grind. I want this to be joyful. And Father, we uh, work through our own pathology, our own issues in life so that we can be the kind of people that we need to be, both to our spouses and to our friends and to our children. And oh Lord, we thank you that uh, you're working in us and that uh, we can experience growth in every, every day that we live. We pray that you'll speak to us and mold us together in such a way that we can be a unified force, not just as families, but as a congregation, and cry out to the world that Christ is really the answer to the joy shortage that we, that we experience so often, and uh, who wipes the tears away from our heartaches and uh, gives us the courage to continue to march that path that uh, you've outlined for us, uh, decreed for us, Father, until we ultimately meet you in glory. We thank you for the promise. We rely on it. We look forward to it. In the meantime, keep us faithful to one another, uh, uh, having a heart for those who still need the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen. <laughs>